It's history. It's hardcore history. One of the real perks for me in doing this history podcast happens to be the interview shows that we throw in from time to time. And the reason why is, like any human being, I gravitate towards interviewing the people that I find interesting. As a matter of fact, I tend to interview the people that have influenced me in history. A lot of people will email me and say they really like the approach that we take on these podcasts and how unusual and all that sort of stuff it is. And I have to be fair and honest and say that the things that those people like about this show did not spring from me, you know, out of nowhere. There's an old line about history that we all stand on the shoulders of giants. And if you went and read books by the people that we tend to interview or talk about in this show, you'll see that my style, my approach, and the, the way I look at history are, well, more than a little derivative from the people who influenced me. What's also interesting is if you put the people that influenced me in a room together, they might not get along with each other. I take a little from this guy, a little from that guy, a lot from that guy. Today's interview subject is one of those people that I think I take a lot from. As a matter of fact, I was rereading some of his more recent books in preparation for today's interview, and I even told Ben, the producer, wow, you know, we really do a lot of our stuff in the same style as this very influential writer and historian. Now, let me tell you a little about him just in case you don't know, and if you don't know, where have you been? We're going to talk to historian and columnist Gwen Dyer today. And if that name's familiar to you, and it should be, he did one of the greatest series on war that I ever saw in my life came out in the middle 1980s. If you ever saw it, you've probably never forgotten it. You can actually get the companion book for it, even now, and get it, you won't be disappointed. He's got one of the most interesting resumes of any of the people we've talked to on the program. I usually don't get into the resumes too much, except this one's really unusual. Dyer joined the military, he's a Canadian journalist, by the way, when he was 16 years old in Canada, joined the Naval Reserve, not just that, he's been in the Canadian Naval Reserve, the American Naval Reserve, and the British Naval Reserve. How interesting and unusual is that on a resume? He's got a BA in history from a Newfoundland university, a master's degree from Rice University in Houston, Texas, and his PhD in military and Middle Eastern history at King's College London. He's taught at the Great British Military Academy at Sandhurst. Very interesting guy. And we were lucky enough, and he was generous enough, to give us some of his time today and talk about, well, some of the strange stuff that I like to discuss that probably isn't so strange to him, because after all, he was one of the people that got me interested in this sort of stuff to begin with. And so without further ado, historian and columnist and supremely influential person on yours truly, Gwen Dyer. All right. Um, well, maybe we could start with, I've been lucky enough doing these interviews that I get to grab people that have meant a lot to my development doing what I do now. And I first saw your work in high school, actually. They showed it to us, uh, your famous uh, series on war. And I had always been, my mother thinks I must have been on some battlefield in a past life because I was fascinated <laughs> with this subject from a very early age, like a lot of other people we probably both know. 
and yet I'm not a violent person. I never wanted to hurt anyone, and I never understood my connection to this until I saw you and realized, okay, here's another person who obviously has been fascinated by military history and obviously is not a violent, terrible person. So I thought maybe we could start the questioning with, explain to me why you think we're interested in this stuff. The books fly off the shelf, and I can't imagine that all those people are violent, terrible people who read this stuff. Why is it so fascinating to us? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons, and and one of them is simply that it is um, the extremes of human human behavior that you're looking at here. And and extremes of human behavior in people who are normal, not psychos, not crazies, not people from the fringes, but rather perfectly ordinary people put in this situation, and you can see how they behave in these extreme situations. I think there's an abiding fascination in that. there is a curiosity in those who haven't seen war, and there's a fascination even among those who have with how people behave, though they find it hard to talk about it if they've actually been there. Um, that's one reason. And, and the other reason is simply that it is such an overwhelmingly large part of our experience and our history. Um, you know, wars do th- settle things. They may do so less often now than they used to, but they really do settle things. And then you live with the aftermath for several generations, so or forever, in some cases. Um, so I think there's, there's good reason to be fascinated. Now, I've always, you know, for years I've interviewed and talked to and been taught by people who's, um, who's, who's I guess you could say, whose who's specialty is military history. And you folks always seem, and I've been told I am too, to be a bit of a pessimistic lot. Um, in other words, thinking that people tend not to change that much in our tragic ways, but our weaponry gets better and, and our technology becomes more powerful and dangerous. I remember that seemed to be a major theme in, your, in, 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 well, in some of your modern books too, but certainly in the war series, that if we don't somehow figure out a way to change our nature with the level of weaponry, weaponry and technology, that when those two paths cross, we're in big trouble. Are you pessimistic? Um, too simple a question, really. Um, I, th- I, hope, I think the answer is neither pessimistic nor optimistic, but realistic, um, which is neither of the above, you understand, but a, a much more nuanced way of looking at things. Um, I, no, I think the... I I remember having a huge argument um, towards the end of that television series with somebody who wanted me to end with some exhortation to change the way we think and behave. The human heart must change. And I thought, come on, the human heart's not going to change. But we can change our institutions and the way we do business. And that is probably enough, um, because we aren't actually ravening monsters waiting for the next opportunity to kill somebody. It's much more complicated than that. We built these very powerful institutions over literally thousands of years, um, inheriting the foundations for for those institutions of the, the tribal and warfare of the past from far longer ago than that. But now we've erected these institutions. They do. Every single organized society on the planet has an army. 
You know, this is a fairly deeply entrenched human institution invented over the last few thousand years, like marriage and inheritance and a few others, you know, but built on deeper foundations. Um, you can change the way your institutions work if you work, if you really want to and you're willing to work at it. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the, the whole history of the 20th century was a long object lesson in how hard it is to change those institutions. But from the very beginning of the 20th century, people were trying to change them. That's what the League of Nations was about. That's what many international treaties were about. Even going back to the 19th century, that was certainly what the United Nations was about. Um, do you expect it going, it's going to happen easily and quickly? No, of course not. Given what you're trying to change here, you know, it's found foundations go back at least to Mesopotamia. Um, but I don't think you have to change human nature. Well, it, you it, have to change the institutions. It brings though me right to the next question, which is sort of why don't we learn? I mean, a good example is uh, Afghanistan. Here. Afghanistan used to be a place that people would think to, you know, strategists and whatnot would think about avoiding, like, the plague. And, yeah. and yet, once again, I think we human beings have, have sort of a, 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 a rational—we rationalize things and say, well, you know, sure, that's history, but we're different. Maybe it's the military technology or what have you. Why don't we learn from the First World War, the Second World War, as, as maybe— well as we should. If somebody were spanking us and we were a little child, we would learn. Why don't we learn when the historical version of spankings happen? <laughs> well, that's a way of putting it, yes. Um, well, I mean, you take the case of Afghanistan. Um, it's, it's a very good case in point. Um, the idea behind 9-11, it seems to me, um, was actually to lure the United States into invading Afghanistan so that it could be administered the same nasty experience that previous invaders of Afghanistan had had gone through. You called it terrorism uh, as jiu-jitsu in your book Future Tense. Well, yeah, political jiu-jitsu. I mean, you sucker a much more powerful opponent into doing something that will serve your purposes and get him in trouble. And you said that uh, we teach that in our war colleges, so well, you, so you would mean, think we would learn. Stuff. So why don't we learn? Well, well, actually, uh, give them some credit. Um, what bin Laden wanted the U.S. to do was roll into Afghanistan like the Russians rolled into Afghanistan 15 years before, or like you know the British rolled into Afghanistan three times in the 19th century and you know got their noses well, 19th and early 20th, and got their noses bloodied every time. He assumed that that would happen. He was ready for that to happen. And if that had happened, there would have been an awful guerrilla war um, in Afghanistan from the first. Now, actually, while it's certainly true that old Don Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney and people like that, happily receding into history as we speak, um, were ready to do exactly that sort of invasion of Afghanistan, that's not what happened. What actually happened was that George Tenet, who may have had his flaws, but as the head of the CIA said, no, 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 we don't want to invade Afghanistan like that. That's what they want us to do. I'll send in a couple of hundred 
CIA guys, give me some special forces folks to go with him. And what we'll do is we'll buy up the various opposition groups in the Northern Alliance who are already in revolt against the Taliban. We'll arm them. We'll give them suitcases full of money. We'll put some target designate, laser target, target designators in there, and we'll bring down the Taliban without invading Afghanistan with a U.S. Army. And it was never invaded by a U.S. Army. At the point where Kabul fell, in November 2003, there were fewer than a thousand Americans on the ground in all of Afghanistan. We brought down that regime without invading. So somebody was thinking, George Tenet was, never been thanked for it, but, I mean, he got in there before the Pentagon had got his act together. So when, we talk, so when they talk was. about a surge now, is that the right move, or is that beginning to fall into the hands of the original plan on the other side? <sighs> well, I mean, there was no original plan on the other side for, for Iraq, which is what you're talking about there, the, the surge. I mean, nobody in, in their right minds expected the United States to invade Iraq. Why would it? I mean, you know, this, this was a vast surprise to everybody else on the planet. Why? <laughs> There is still a huge debate about why Bush did that. And I, but I don't know that that's what I'm talking about. The talk here in the United States is that we're going to do a similar kind of surge in Afghanistan. Now. Oh, yeah, that's rather sad, isn't it? I mean, you know, if you're doing the wrong thing, do you think doing more of it's going to work? Um, you know, the first thing to do when you're in a hole is stop digging. Um, so you don't uh, think the technology, the unmanned drones and all that stuff is going to change our reality from the British trying to, to deal with it or the Russians trying to deal with it? Yeah, well, we had, you know, fighter bombers and napalm in Vietnam. That didn't change it. Um, you know, they, they, no, it's, it's um, it, the technology is not going to change the way that occupy, occupation armies are seen in countries that do not like being occupied. And, you know, as far as the Afghans are concerned, that's who we are. I don't care what we think we're doing there, it's what they think we're doing there that matters. Um, and, you know, all the drones and all the technology, well, it just allows you to kill more people. But, you know, killing people tends to annoy their relatives. I mean, we've just been through three weeks of that in the Gaza Strip. I mean, the, the Israelis... You know, to the man who has only a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And the only instrument that the Israelis have for dealing with the Palestinians is military force. Because they can't bring themselves to talk to the Palestinians because of the compromises they'd have to make and the concessions they'd have to give. And they can't even settle among themselves what those would be. So, no, you hammer them with military force. It doesn't work. It didn't work last time. It didn't work the time before that. You would sort of figure out that this was going to be a pointless war. But they did it because they couldn't think of anything else to do. And I think that, you know, that sort of that the, the U.S. response to... Iraq now is far less intelligent, uh, sorry, to Afghanistan now. The U.S. response to Iraq from start to end was totally unintelligent, ignorant, stupid, foredoomed, all the rest of it. But there was an intelligence response to Afghanistan in 2001. Now we're just pouring more troops in. And we're going to win a military victory over the guerrillas in a country where nobody has ever won a military guerrilla, uh, victory over the guerrillas, over the local resistance. What on earth do they think they're doing? 
I mean, you would have thought Obama would be better advised than that, but he's clearly not. It's the same structure that's giving him the advice is the problem. It's the same structure. It's the same people in some cases. I mean, (laughs) who is the Secretary of State today? Let's talk about progress for a second, because I often wonder if if what I think I see as progress is is more of an illusion or really is. I mean, I vacillate between two types of historical thinking. Sometimes I think that the things I see that you could define as progress are actually happening. Other times I think I see a temporary illusion. For example, let me give you Germany and France. There are two countries that have been fighting forever. Caesar was writing about the people that live in those areas having problems with each other. They mm-hmm. they fought three wars in a hundred years between 1870 and 1945, and yet they seem to be two nations that in the mind's eye you could never see going to war with each other again. Now, is that That's progress right. or is that a short-term uh, visual illusion on my part? Well, I think it's genuine progress. I mean, the whole point of the European Union was to make it impossible for them to go to war again. Um, is it the Holy uh, Roman Empire, though, reborn? Well, no. It's, a, it's, it's another formless, shapeless, amorphous body, which nevertheless does exist. Um, but it's actually, quite specifically, from the start, about ending that particular poisonous conflict. I mean, there was a very striking moment um, about 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, This was when Helmut Kohl was still the chancellor in Germany and Jacques Mitro was still the president in France. And uh, the two men went to uh, Verdun to the, I guess it must have been the, I don't know, 60th anniversary, whatever it would have been then of the Battle of Verdun. One of the worst ever, yes. Franco-German slaughterhouse, 1916, probably about 1996, so maybe it was, you know, 80 years. Um, 1991, anyway, it doesn't matter. The point was this. Um, the I think they didn't actually know the cameras were on. This was only ever sh- shot from behind. But at a certain point in the proceedings, those two men held hands. It was quite. It was extraordinary. It was absolutely remarkable, um, and they knew exactly why they were holding hands. You know, and it's not because the French and the Germans are ever going to love each other. There's, no, there's, in the sense of enormously enjoy each other's company and respond to each other's jokes. And so, I mean, there is a difference in the, the culture and the character. Um, but they had managed to make this impossible. Do you know? And and they have. That's progress. That's genuine progress. I think it is almost inconceivable that Europe, the nations of Europe, um, could go to war with each other again, with one another again. And given the history of the last thousand years, that's progress. Well, let's talk about the—see, I've—and I think we all have—read lots of people who will tell us that we're living— in the aftershocks still of the First World War, that 500 years from now, historians, you know, after time compresses, we'll see everything we're dealing with now maybe is shaking out the wrinkles and creases left over from that conflict. 
I always think about what a thin reed it was that that conflict started on. I mean, you know, we're all aware of the story of of yeah. the Serbian assassin who missed his chance to kill the Archduke of Austria, was getting himself a little food at a cart afterwards, and boom, all of a sudden fate puts the Archduke in front of him again. He shoots him. If that doesn't happen, are we here today, or was Europe so filled with gasoline and gunpowder that it would have happened some other way? I mean, is history based on such a thin reed as that opportunistic piece of chance, or is it more complicated than that? I vacillate on this issue, but I think the answer is um, it didn't have to happen. Um, it might not have happened for another 10 years or 20 years. It might never have happened, though that seems less likely. Um, but it wasn't, history wasn't running on rails. I mean, the retrospect, hindsight, because history is frozen once it happens, has a habit of looking inevitable. And the way historians go about seeking the past reinforces that sense of inevitability because you're looking for evidence of why things came out the way they did rather than evidence of why they might not have come out some other way. You know, evidence you cast aside because clearly it didn't come out some other way. Do you see what I mean? Well, sure, and and, and, had, and had any of the diplomatic... I mean, Barbara Tuckman's book... Uh, the Guns of August does a great job in showing how there was almost a mechanical precision and a sort of impetus that starts once the wheels of mobilization start. Well, agreed, but, you know, uh, they were not completely slaves to the system any more than we are today. We create these systems. We find it very difficult to move beyond the parameters of the systems, and certainly if you try to interrupt the process once it's in motion— you screw everything up. Well, what about Neil Ferguson's idea that you, uh, the British stay out of that war and you just have another 1870 Franco-Prussian war again? Well, that could have happened. Or the war might not have happened at all. I mean, the, um, I, you know, if the Archduke had not been killed and his wife, um, there would not have been a crisis in the summer of 1914. Um now, by the way, I must tell you, I don't know if this is still true because I haven't been back to Sarajevo for some time, but I was there a long time ago. I had my kids with me, actually. And um, we went to, we were driving through we were on our way back from Turkey to London, and we stopped and, and um, went and found the street corner, you know, down by the bridge. The spot. Where, where Gavrilo Princip had shot the Archduke. And you know what? There was a pair of golden footprints set into the sidewalk so you could put your feet where he had stood when he shot them because, of course, he's a, or was a, Yugoslav national hero. Yes, sir. Serbian terrorist, depending on your viewpoint, right? Or Serbian terrorist, depending on your viewpoint, but the viewpoint really settles so much, doesn't it? No, I mean, the, the idea that, that, you know, the First World War was inevitable, no. It wasn't inevitable. It was probably quite likely that something like that would happen at some point. But, you know, it was also quite likely that it would have happened 15 years before that, except the adversaries would have been Britain and France. Well, and you think today, I mean, if, if Europe, you know, I, I forgot who I read who recently called the two world wars European civil wars. Mm -hmm. If those things don't happen and you don't have the carnage that almost shocks human sensibilities into new directions, might we have that France and German rapprochement today? No, uh, you wouldn't. No, that does come out of the horrors of the Second, First, and Second World Wars. Um, 
So you wouldn't have that rough brush mob, but on the other hand, you wouldn't have had Europe destroyed either. You wouldn't have had all those millions, tens of millions of dead. Um, if you hadn't had the First World War, it's very difficult to see how you, how you could have the second. You had to have the first first, as it were, to get a phenomenon like Hitler or the, or the communist regime in, in Russia going. None of those people would have risen to the top, Stalin and Hitler and all that, if you hadn't had the First World War. So no, no First World War, then no Second World War, okay, no rapprochement, but then, on the other hand, no great need for one. Interesting. Let me ask you, there's um, and this is a little bit of a subject change, um, there's an attitude in the United States, and maybe in the West in general, using that term in the old-fashioned sense, I guess, um, yeah. that world progress means moving in the direction that our institutions have moved to, you know, representative democracy and all that. I guess mm. I guess I'm looking at my questions now realizing so many of them focus on the word progress and human movement in a better direction. Um, yet you look at places like China and the Middle East who seem to stubbornly resist the Western model of what constitutes historical progress, and you look at Russia and they seem to be backsliding on that front. Why isn't the world, in your opinion, moving more in the direction that we thought it would? Was our thinking flawed, or is something else at play? Um, well, you know, it's, I mean, it's on one, in, in one sense, it, you know, it's the, it's the remark that I think it was Zhou Enlai, the uh, Chinese premier, Mao's second-in-command through the 50s and 60s. Zhou Enlai was asked what he thought about the French Revolution, and his reply was, it's a bit early to tell. <laughs> I love that one. You know? Um, <laughs> so, you know, it, you know, something remarkable happened um, 20 years ago, which is that the, well, between 30 and tw 35 and 20 years ago, which is that the dictatorships of the left mainly, but also of the right in Greece, in Portugal, in Spain, which ruled more than half of Europe from the end of the Second World War down to the 70s, all vanished. The Greek colonels went, Franco's regime fell, Salazar in Portugal went. All those countries turned into democracies, and then, lo and behold, all the countries of Eastern Europe overthrow their, their communist regimes and turn into democracies, and Russia itself has a good go at it. I still wouldn't despair of Russia, by the way. Um, so, yeah, this does give you the sense that something's going on here. And, I mean, I spent an awful lot of time in Russia and Eastern Europe doing all of that stuff. Um, I was practically living there through 88 and 89 and 90. And um, I did actually sort of formulate for my own amusement, at least, um, a hypothesis about what was going on, which would certainly sort of generalize this to a a human rather than a Western trend. And I thought at the time, and I still kind of think, it is a human rather than a purely Western trend. Um, although the evidence is a bit spotty in the early 21st century. But after all, if you think about it, um, more than half of Africa has actually got rid of the old big man uh, you know, dictatorships. Um, South Africa managed to get rid of apartheid and turn into a more or less functional democracy. Great many Asian countries have done this. The, you know, the, 
The Philippines got rid of Marcus. You may not be that proud of what you got there now, but it ain't that bad. Indonesia got rid of Suharto and is a democracy. Uh, Indian democracy has survived. Pakistan, well, that comes and goes. Um, But, uh, you know, the ties, despite all the recent upheavals, all of these countries are much more democratic, much more freedom of speech, much more civil in the way of civil rights and legal rights than they used to have. So, uh, you know, it's a bit early to despair. You don't, don't just focus on the Middle East. Middle East has got very curious problems. So when the Chinese talk about, you know, the Western concept of human rights as really being Western rights and whatnot, that's more of a self-interest thing than... Well, I think this is what they, <laughs> it's what they would say, isn't it? Yes. Um no, I mean, I, I actually think that the... You want a grand historical theory? It's, it's cheap. Oh, I like the cheap ones. Okay. Um, the grand historical theory is this. Um, human beings have an evolutionary heritage which is egalitarian, which is about equality, certainly among males. But I would say probably among adult human beings... Most of the little societies that every human being lived in until ten or 11,000 years ago, and most of us lived in until maybe five or 6,000 years ago, your ancestors and mine, were groups of 100 or so people, hunter-gatherers, moving around a fairly defined range, usually. Um, in those groups, there was no leader. There was no boss. There was no hierarchy, and decisions got made by con- by discussion and consensus, probably never a show of hands. More rather like, I don't know, if you've ever been exposed to the way Native Americans make their decisions, everybody has a say as often as they want for as long as they want. It's one of life's most boring experiences to be present while they're making a big decision because it can go on for days. Um, and everybody is equal, and nobody can be compelled, and you can if you want, after everybody else has agreed, leave, but um, there is nobody gives orders. Now, that's the way that human beings live for at least a couple of million years. And then we go into the big societies. We invent agriculture. We invent the city. We invent the mass society. Perhaps it's only ten or 20,000 people, because you don't know everybody else anymore. You can't all sit around the campfire and argue. And just functionally, those cities, those societies need hierarchy. And hierarchy emerges, and boy, is it not pretty. And, and so you go into the seven or 8,000-year, 10,000-year night of universal dictatorship, tyranny, and oppression. Everybody... Everybody, everywhere in the world living in some slot in a hierarchy and almost certainly doomed by birth to live and die in that slot. Um, that's the history as opposed to the prehistory of humanity. But it was functional. I mean, that was how you had to do it if you were going to live in the big societies and be- reap the benefits and security and you know regular meals of, of living in those big societies. Um, Okay, now you come down to the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries, and what changes? Well, what changes is that the numbers are still big, but you are acquiring technologies 
that allow those very large numbers of people to have, in some sense, the kind of conversation about what do we do next that used to take place around that campfire among the hundred adults of the band, or 50. And, you know, we've got newspapers, we've got books, we've got... Um, you know, this is we. You know, we don't even have radio and television and microphones yet, but we can have a kind of discussion across a society, even of a couple of million people, about our values, our goals, and how we behave towards one another, the rules. And as soon as that becomes technically possible, you see the old egalitarianism reemerging in places, first of all, where there is, for example, a press, the early form of media. I mean, Tom Paine, for God's sake. You know, an Englishman who comes across to the 13 colonies and within a year is publishing a newspaper. And about two-thirds of the population of the 13 colonies read what he was writing. Um, So, you know, and could, you know, respond to it, you know, this is revolutionary rubbish, and I don't want anything to do with it, or that's what I wanted to hear all my life. But, you know, you can have that sort of, through the whole society, that kind of debate, discussion, even decision about who we are and what we want to do together. Um, So as soon as that becomes technically possible, you get the democratic revolutions, American Revolution in 1776, French Revolution in 1789, Actually, even going back to the English Revolution, the Civil War of the 1640s. Yeah, Cromwell and everyone. Cromwell and all that. They killed the king. <laughs> you know? I mean, it didn't last, in a sense, but that's where Tom Paine was coming from. You know, he'd read all the stuff that was written a century before, the levelers and the diggers and all the rest of it. So but the point is, this is not because Anglo-Saxon culture is leading the way, it's because Anglo-Saxon technology gives the English speakers and the French speakers, let's be fair here, um, first go at trying to use the new technology to recover the old values. I would not call that a cheap theory myself. That's just me. But <laughs> I thought that was quite <laughs> well, fascinating. Well, it didn't cost you much, did it? Exactly. Uh, okay, <laughs> but if that's the case, if, if what facilitated this was technology and not having Greeks among your ancestors, you know, it's not having Plato up there, who wasn't a Democrat anyway, um, it's having a printing press. Then if there had been a popular press in China, the argument would go, that's where you'd first have seen democracy arise. That's very interesting. So, okay, if that's the case, then no, it's not purely European purely Western, they say that because they're trying to resist the fact, try, trying to resist being removed by local Chinese Democrats, who did, after all, appear in large numbers back in 89, as I recall. Democracy wall, all that stuff. Well, everything in China seems to involve very large numbers. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Um, I, want but, resist, I want to resist asking you the question that I have asked everyone that I've interviewed before, because they all give the same answer, but okay, I want to take Connie. it... I want to take it one step farther. The question I ask them all is, do people know enough about history? And if they don't, what are the ramifications? I want to go past that because I'm not getting any new answers. Um, (laughs) You can imagine what they say. 
Well, yes, I can. Actually, I probably should have saying. But, but, but here's what I always get after I do those shows. I get flooded with emails from listeners who are not history students per se, but don't want to fall into that category of people that don't know enough about history. So they will flood me with emails saying, what do I have to know? Tell me the five things or the ten things or what have you that I need to read to be an educated person and not fall into that trap all those wonderful historians you talk about talk about. And I never have have a good answer for them. If somebody came to you and said, Gwen Dyer, what do I need to know to have the basics without being a history scholar the rest of my life? Are there any examples? I mean, obviously, Gwen Dyer's books would help. But, you know, I mean, are there are there other examples out there you would say you need to know this or you'd be better off reading that or anything of that nature? Jeez. Um, Why should I have all the fun trying to answer those emails? Why should you indeed? Yes. Um, well, you don't have okay. to give specifics. You can give this. you can give um, general the, areas. The, 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 history has two purposes. One is to understand how stuff works, and the other is to know where you came from. What you know, whose shoulders are you standing on? But and and there, and, it, and it leads to two different ways of teaching history. I mean, I got a daughter who's doing A levels um, at the moment. A levels being the equivalent of senior high school in England. Um, and she's doing history, and um, I'm, I'm fascinated because they've clearly made the decision that they're going to teach history as how things work. And so she, they'll pick particular places and periods and study them in great detail. You know, so sort of China from the 1930s to the 1970s, and then they, and before that they were doing the Prohibition era in the United States. And you know, so what you're doing is you're figuring out how things work, how people interact, how groups interact, how culture influences behavior, all that stuff. Now, that's one kind of history, and that, you know, there, you'd read one kind of book if you wanted to know that. And there's another kind of history, which is, well, crudely speaking, names and dates and events. And that's not unimportant. It's kind of important to know what happened, you know? Um, for several reasons, one of them being, um, you know, the story didn't begin yesterday. You better know the antecedents of the story. It's kind of hard to understand how Europe works today without knowing about the First and Second World Wars, isn't it? Um, but beyond that, um, you need what many people lack, and that is some sense of the depth in time of your own culture, broadly defined how far back it goes, how much has been accomplished, how much has been tried and failed. Some, you know, it, it gives you a sense of perspective on yourself, which is, I think, very important. So here's two different kinds of history, and you actually read two different kinds of books. The, the latter kind of book is, is almost a catalog. I mean, I think it was, who was it who wrote the, 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 the original Everything You Ever Needed to Know About History book? I think it was actually... H.G. Wells. The science fiction writer and war gamer. The science fiction writer and so on. But he wrote a... I, I may be wrong on this because I can remember reading it was a kid. And it was already obviously an old book without a dust cover in the library. Um, but it was a history of everything. You know, a history of the world. A brief history of the world. There's been a couple of others written since. Something like that's really important. You need to know. Actually, if you... Um, I'll tell you what it'd be. 
Was it Thor Heyerdahl or somebody like that wrote a book like that as well? Some Scandinavian name, I, I yeah. to mind. No, well, there, actually, there's been several attempts at it, but here's an interesting thing to do. And I think it's, it might be, it serves the purpose of both understanding what happened, of, of knowing what happened, and of understanding how things work better than any other single book I can think of. And it isn't technically a history book at all. And it's Jared Diamond's book, Guns, Germs, and Steel. Oh, yes. Do you know the book? Yes, I do. Very popular here, actually. I'm enormously popular, and deservedly so. And, and the reason I say that is because he actually set out, he explains how he set out to understand why history came out the way it did. And, but he has to do the history as he does that investigation. And, and it all began with, and as he relates it, he's an anthropologist. He's studying in um, some tribe in, in um, Highland, New Guinea. Um, so going back to people that are st almost Stone Age in some respects. Stone Age people. And one of these guys who knows him quite well, um, knows him well enough to know that Jared Diamond isn't any smarter than he is, um, asks Jared Diamond, how come... If you aren't any smarter than I am, I'm a Stone Age guy um, with no power over even my local environment, and you are a, a member of a society with a million times as many people as mine, and you stride, bestride the world. What happened? Hey, it's not fair, but that's not the question. Why? How come you ended up on top and my people didn't? And And, you know, from that... Diamond looks at why some cultures, some countries, some peoples came out ahead of others on the assumption, which I think is fairly safe, that nobody's a lot smarter than anybody else. Or braver, you know, <laughs> there's got to be something else to play here. And, and, and what he did, I thought, was history at its best, even though it's not history at all. Um, it was working out, you know, who had who had the best start in terms of really fundamental things like, um, well, if you um, if you live in either in any of the new worlds, I'm using the word the way they do in Britain, where all the Australian and Argentine and American wine is on the same shelf, and it's called New World wine. Oh, how funny! Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the new worlds in that sense. And the South African wines too. Um, so uh, the all of the new worlds, especially the well, the Americas and Australia. Um, whoever was living there, Aboriginals in Australia or um, the the native, <clears throat> the three waves of native <clears throat> North Americans, uh, the you know sort of the original, the Amerindian, the Algonquian, and the Inuit, who came in, all of them operating under a huge disadvantage in terms of building some civilization a few thousand years down the track because they've got no big draft animals. And the reason they've got no big draft animals, though we're not supposed to say this in polite circles, is because they killed them all. So that's when you get the god the god dog idea and all that, where they're using dogs to pull carts and stuff instead of horses. That's right, but you know there was horses there once. They killed them all. I mean, the the the, the, the there's a phrase which 
drives many of my native friends insane. It's called the New World Blitzkrieg. Oh, Ever heard it? No, I haven't. The New World Blitzkrieg is the hypothesis, which is frankly pretty close to a certainty, that the mass extinction of the larger land fauna, uh, most of the larger land fauna in North and South America about twelve to 14,000 years ago, was pretty closely related to the arrival of human beings in North and South America at that point. Because <laughs> these were animals who had no experience of human beings, unlike the animals of the old world who'd co-evolved with human beings and had learned avoidance behaviors, you know, the ones that survived over many, many thousands of generations. Here are animals who are basically virgins on the subject of human beings, and you can go up and knock them on the head and kill them. The dodo and everything. The dodo, okay. <laughs> but we're now talking about all of the animals who might have been candidates for something more than human muscle power if you want to build a civilization. And um, because you arrived in this continent where all of those large animals weren't afraid of you, and you're a hunter, you killed him. And the idea that, you know, there would be self-restraint, come on, there hardly ever is. Um, you know, people don't understand when they live in hunter-gatherer communities about the, you know, the biology of reproduction of large animals. Not enough to actually ration it out. Um, this goes contrary to a great deal of mythology, but there is no historical case for saying that. I mean, sure they do now. Well, I mean, you can look at these areas uh, in Africa where uh, people are forced to cut down every stick of wood that you can see off into the distance yeah. to burn it for fuel, and you think to yourself, my God, if we all lived like our ancestors in tribal societies lived, there'd be no sticks, there'd be no animals, there'd be no fuel, there'd be nothing with six yeah. billion people. Yeah, well, exactly. But, but, I mean, you know, if you think about it, the first civilizations arose in the old world, about 11,000 years ago, basically when the weather turned nice and you could do agriculture and not starve to death. Okay? Sure. Now, by 11,000 years ago, there had been human beings in the Americas for 3,000 years, and they were a fairly dense hunter-gatherer population by then, and there had been human beings in Australia for 33,000 years. So how come if they got five or six different civilizations going in the old world, they didn't get any going until thousands of years later in the new world, and they never really picked up speed. And, and, and you know, the large answer that, that Jared Diamond gives is they didn't have any draft animals. Neither did they have, and this is just bad luck, the kinds of really bountiful crops that yield very high protein returns on effort invested that were available in the old world. But, I mean, you know, if you compare, what, what, you know, the, the, the Fertile Crescent, Egypt, China, by about a thousand years later, has horses, cows, pigs, sheep, goats, oxen, the whole panoply, you know, ducks, geese, whatnot. Um, and what does the New World have? Chickens, dogs. Bison. Well, they can't domesticate bison. Right. Nobody can domesticate. Right. still can't. <laughs> Domestication, there's relatively few species that can be successfully domesticated. You can domesticate a horse. You can't domesticate a zebra. 
though they are only about a smidgen apart. Um, and there just wasn't anything big to domesticate in the Americas or in Australia, and so you couldn't build a civilization on them. So they started so far behind for that reason. That's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, what I mean, that's the kind of uses history has. It means it helps you understand things. Let me, uh, and I, because I don't want to take up too much of your valuable time. Let's talk a little about the future. That's not that valuable. <laughs> don't, don't say that. It's not cheap. Um, the future. I'm reading a, a bunch of your books now, trying to play catch up on some of the things, just to make sure you didn't bring up something that I hadn't read of yours yet. Um, I was just watching Barack Obama's speech. Forgot it was on until you told me. And I was listening to him talk about uh, the decline of the United States and how this is a, you know, that, that some people say this country's in decline, blah, blah, blah. And I thought to myself about the people that talk about us like we're the new Rome and everything. And I wanted to ask you a little about your opinion of the staying power. You know, there's that line about France, and I don't remember who said it, that France has the soul of a great empire but not the means and that the United States has the means, but not the soul, meaning the, the the willingness to pay the cost and whatnot. How do you see things going in the near future for the um, the new Rome? Well, I think one of the glories of the American people is that they don't actually want an empire. Agreed. Um, and, you know, okay, this makes them a, a, a less successful imperial power than they would be if they were really keen on that role. I don't see anything to rebuke them in about that. Um, I'm not actually sure we need an imperial power. Now, Neil I mean, Ferguson, Neil Ferguson thinks we do, so I find it interesting the different historians differ. You don't think we need uh, somebody to, to, to make the currency rates and to set all that stuff that the, the imperial power is supposed to do like Britain did 100 years ago? Well, we don't, we don't seem to need it nationally, do we? I mean, where is, you know, where is the equivalent in the United States of the role for some designated group within society that the United States is allegedly supposed to play in the world of nations. You know, Americans, and there's 300 million of them, managed to do all this stuff without some emperor. Why do we need it at the larger scale? It's not that much larger. Do you think the international entities and whatnot could, could do those sorts of things? I think they could do it. They wouldn't do it very well, but then emperors don't either. Um, you, um, the, uh, the, the, the role of the United States is obviously, always has been, smaller than Americans imagine. American political rhetoric, and we had a large dose of it from Mr. Obama just now, um, is about America as this unique society, the city on the hill, the focus of mankind's aspirations. The all indispensable stuff. nation, all that stuff. Yeah, that's I mean, Well, you know, people like to say nice things about themselves that, that puff them up a bit, and it, there's no harm in it. I mean, you should hear the French when they're at it. Um, <laughs> but but uh, it ain't really that indispensable. I mean, if the United States vanished... I'm not sure how I'm going to finish this sentence, but I've started it, so I'll continue. If the United States vanished, I mean painlessly, of course, and the world had to get on without it, would everything fall apart? I don't think so. I mean, it's nice to have it. You know, the music's good. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, is it indispensable? It would have been indispensable in the 20th century. I think the 20th century would have come out very badly without the United States. Um, 
But in the current uh, conjunction of events, no, I can't see any particular need for it. I mean, I'm glad it's there. So it's like a um, post-1945 anomaly, our position on the planet. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, countries get that role for a while, and some of them rise to it very well, as the United States did. Um, but uh, we don't actually need a paramount power. Imperial is perhaps the wrong word, but paramount sort of fits the bill. Um, what do we need it for? Um, you know, the... Um, you know, we have international institutions. We can talk to each other. In the end, we all do have to agree. So why don't we just get on with it and agree? Or not, as the case may be. But I can't see how having one large power is going to change that dynamic all that much. Now, I have sitting in front of me a bunch of your different books here. And and I'm realizing, especially I've got the companion guide to the uh, the war series and stuff where you pretty much taught me how much things are the same in a military sense, whether we're talking 2000 B.C., 200 B.C., 200 A.D., 1500 A.D. There was one thing you said that has never left me, I quote you all the time, where you had talked about, I don't know if it was Rome or Assyria had destroyed a city, and you said that they might as well have done it with a nuclear weapon. They just had to do it through sheer muscle power. It, it, was, yeah, it, was, it was more labor-intensive, shall we say. Um, but yes, I think it was actually the Assyrians, yes. And and, and I, I thought to myself, well, if you wanted to bring up something on this program, you know, of a depth that I didn't ask you, what's on Gwyn Dyer's mind? This is sort of the out question, obviously, but, but you're talking to an audience, uh, mostly Americans, but people from, from all over the place. Um, you're in a hundred and, what, 150 columns you do two times a week. Um, what is Gwen Dyer thinking these days? What's on your mind? Well, I mean, what I've actually been doing the last couple of years, apart from, you know, two columns a week and stuff like that, um, has been a fairly in-depth investigation of the geopolitics of climate change. Um, climate change, I mean, climate change is to the 21st century <clears throat> as total war nuclear weapons were to the 20th. I mean, that's the test you've got to pass. The doomsday scenario. The, well, it's not. Yeah, it is a doomsday scenario if you get everything wrong. But then you can, you know, there's lots of ways of getting doomsday scenarios. Um, the point is that, you know, as the technologies give us greater capacity to influence impact on the world, um, we develop various kinds of doomsday capabilities, and we have to learn how to control and deal with them. And we spent the latter half of the 20th century learning. Perhaps we haven't fully learned yet, but we may. We did pass the midterm. Um, how to deal with the kinds of technologies that made old-fashioned total war suicidal. Okay, but your institutions are still there. Your reflexes are still there. Your intellect says, mustn't do this anymore, suicide. But it took a half a century for that to get so deeply embedded in the culture that we kind of stepped away from it. And, of course, the weapons are still there, and I can imagine that, not, you know, there's a, the, the problem of, you know, the endless supply of 18-year-olds who haven't learned anything yet. Um, you know, and, and do they actually take this on board? I'm not sure they do, because we don't even talk about the nuclear stuff anymore. All those hard-earned lessons are dying with the people who learned them. Interesting. Um, but that was the 20th century's problem, you know, task. Get through 
what was inevitably going to come if you go into a technological civilization, which is the ability to blow yourself away directly with weapons. 21st century task, get through, um, having developed the ability to completely alter your environment in ways that will do you a world of hurt, um, which involves, again, restraint and cooperation. Those are the ways you get through these tests. Is Gwen Dyer optimistic about that? Well, I haven't cut my throat yet. I've got children, I've got grandchildren, um, and uh, I uh, can't afford to be that pessimistic. Um, but, uh, no, I, I think that the evidence so far, um, to go all Cho and Lai-like on you, <laughs> the evidence so far is that we actually aren't screwing up that badly. I mean, you know, the, the, the whole climate change thing, um, technologically and financially, it's a doddle. You could fix it for 1% of GDP. And the technologies are lying there already in use in small scale or waiting to be picked up. Hey, come on, fossil fuels. Yeah, it was a good idea at the time. We used to burn wood, then we stopped doing that. Now we've been burning coal for a while, and we'll stop doing that, and we'll go to go straight to solar, which is where it all comes from in the first place anyway, or whatever, you know, nuclear, I don't care. Stop doing fossil fuels. You found something bad out. They really do mess the place up. Um, so this is not hard to do technologically. It's not hard to do financially. It's hard to do politically for all the reasons I don't need to rehearse. But on the whole, our track record over the past century or so, since we started running into these problems, which are all connected with, you know, being six billion strong and very rich and powerful with technologies that nobody ever dreamt of before, our, our track record's not that bad. We're all still here, mostly. You know, it, 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 it occurs to me that that's the happy ending that those producers who tried to talk you into it during the war series didn't get. We just got it from you. <laughs> Listen, I'm, well, see, I'm older now. <laughs> Listen, check your web number, see if we give you any kind of a bump, and please keep us in mind. We're obviously big fans. Okay, thanks very much. Take care. You too, Dan. Now, obviously, uh, if you couldn't tell after that interview, I'm a big fan of... Uh, Gwen Dyer's. Why don't you head on over to his website, by the way, GwenDyer.com, G-W-Y-N-N-E-D-Y-E-R. It has a rundown of all the books that he has currently available. I'm rereading After Iraq and Future Tense right now. You could pick up War, The Lethal Custom, which is a revised edition of the companion book to his old War uh, public broadcasting series, which is absolutely fabulous. The Mess They Made and With Every Mistake are still available. Climate Wars, his newest book, is available in places like Canada, the U.K., and Australia. You can get it through Amazon's uh, U.K. site, I'm sure, if you live in the States. You can also, in case you forget any of this, just go to our website at dancarlin.com. Check out the show notes. We will have links to every one of these books. For those of you who are emailing me frantically saying, Where's the next traditional history show, Dan? I've been having some vision problems that have um, slowed my reading down but i think we're at the point where we're just starting to get in the booth record the next traditional this is actually a blitz history show but it's going to sound more like one of our traditional shows i'm in the booth starting the recording process it shouldn't be too long now patience ladies and gentlemen hopefully we kept you satisfied and happy in the meantime 
with this interview of this uh, tremendously interesting human being, Gwen Dyer. Our thanks to him, our thanks to you, and uh, until the next show, take care, everyone. Don't forget to vote for Hardcore History on PodcastAlley.com. Thanks to everyone for posting comments about the show on iTunes. They help to get the program noticed.